Hey folks, this is episode 110 of the Becoming Human podcast. This episode features Ian Ramsey. He's an educator, musician, adventurer, and writer. I really enjoy the way that Ian balances his interests. He checks off all of the boxes that are important to me from exploring and spending time in nature, exercising and pushing his body, delighting in his creativity and expounding his intellect while reveling in his community. I mean, he takes what he learns in life through exercise, adventure, reading, experiences, and Buddhism, and mindfulness, with physiology or brain science, and he shares it with his selected community or with, you know, at work at North Yarmouth Academy. He gets to teach children about environmental writing, physiology, music, brain science, mindfulness, and even lead student adventures. I would participate in sports, not with the most competitive drive, but I was often interested in how it would affect my well-being and how it would help me cope with life and and even push myself a little farther and find ways to be more fulfilled and to build my character. And by looking at Ian Ramsey's work alone, it's it's obvious that that was has been his one of his focuses. And so it was really cool to be able to talk to him and to understand what his experience was like navigating all of these interests and creating a lifestyle that that he wanted. You can learn more about Ian at ianramsey.net. And you can even check out the Kaufman program and Territory Run Company. I'll leave the links to all of that in the show notes at becomingmanpodcast.com. Or you can also find more information at ianramsey.net. Um, without any further ado, here's Ian Ramsey. run for many different reasons that I think the thing that I love about running is it's this integration of all these different um, thing ways of being and ways of doing in the world and ways to explore and be in places so you know I think I love that it keeps me healthy and fit and connected to my body into my physiology. Um, it makes me take care of that and be attentive and feel like a wild animal. Um, I love that it helps to strengthen and focus and clear my mind and gives me like different perspectives. Um, I love that it connects me to the natural world and gets me out on adventures and wild places around animals and mountains. 
and all kinds of different weather. I love the fact that it makes me resilient and tough and makes me do hard things and push through challenges and do things I don't know if I can do. Um, I love the fact that it brings me around other people that also share those values um, so that I can really connect with kind of a tribe and be inspired by them. Um, and then I also love the fact that I think it's just really cool to do, to have adventures and to do things that you didn't know if you could do. So if you could paint a picture for me and imagine if you're like lacing up your running shoes and you see there's a storm coming, mm -hmm. what are you, what are you thinking usually? Oh man, I love running in weather. That's like, it's like the best thing ever. Um, so I mean, I'm, I might be like, all right, time to throw on an extra jacket or, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do something so I'm safe. Um, but I think that those kind of experiences when you're out in weather or conditions, like those are the things that really kind of define you and strengthen you and push you. And also just kind of, um, they just change how you look at the world, you know, because like once you've been out running in a snowstorm or a rainstorm or a lightning storm, all of a sudden you're like, oh, cool. I, I just did that. Like, no big deal. I can I, I you know, so everything else doesn't seem nearly as uh, as impossible. And also, like, I think that that we as a species didn't evolve to, like, go inside when the weather got bad. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it connects me like to kind of my like sort of ancestral heritage in a way. Have you always had that language around weather? Um, to some degree. I mean, I so I grew up, um, I grew up in rural Maine. My, you know, my parents in 1972 bought a house in 40 acres for fourteen thousand wow. dollars, and I had one had one light switch and no insulation, and they still live in that house. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so like. What there was to do is go outside, you know, and we have long winters in Maine and it's cold and we have a lot, you know, New England, the classic thing is we've got seasons, you know, so you've got winter and then you've got like deep winter and then you have <laughs> winter and then you have like mud season and then you have black flies and, oh, you know, gosh. and then you have summer, you know, you have all these different seasons um, and like what there was to do was be outside you know i had i had we had 40 acres but everything around us was also under you know it was maybe some cow pastures but it was mostly woods wow. so you know there's just a lot of opportunity to be outside all the time so i grew up doing that and then uh, i mean to give you an idea of where i grew up this will this will put it in perspective so maybe six or seven years ago um the police arrested a man who had been living as a hermit for 27 years in the woods in 27 Whoa. years, one person, and oh he kind of his existence was from he would break into camps because where the area where I grew up in, there's a bunch of lakes around there, mm -hmm. and so he would break into camps very carefully, very stealthily, very strategically, and steal just small amounts of things. Um, they figured out he made over 900 robberies in 27 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like he was kind of like this myth, like, pe like people knew that stuff had disappeared, but they didn't really know how like he was, he was super careful. He lived in a tent. He, he, and Whoa. he, he, he away. yeah, it's fascinating. But anyway, long story short, they, when they caught him, he was like less than a mile that from the house I grew up in. So I grew up in a place where you could, you could live in the woods for 27 years and not see a human being. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's just super rural. Um, so, you know, I kind of got used to that ethos of, mm-hmm. of just being outside, you know, I went, you know, I had my high school, there were kids who would snowmobile to high school, you know, like, what? Um, yeah. You know, like where I grew up in Maine, sort of central Maine is not, is not really like new England. It's more like Idaho or Montana. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like a mill town. There's a lot of pulp trucks, you know, we're kind of the, we were kind of the last, the town where I went to school was like, was first of all, it was like two towns away from the town I lived in because there were that all these schools that went to this common, uh, all these towns with this common school. But then, you know, it was like lot. We were on the edge of the North Woods, essentially. Um, so, I mean, Maine's interesting in that two thirds of Maine is uninhabited. Um, so wow. there's 10 million uninhabited acres in Maine. Um, and most of that is paper company land or timber lands. Um, so I wouldn't say that it's like wilderness with a capital W. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like wilderness, the lowercase W. But at the same time, in some ways, it is left alone more than like national parks are. Mm. Um, so so it's, anyway, it's kind of an interesting, interesting place. But yeah, so I just grew up around all that around that, you know, I could on the way to school, I could see the Appalachian Mountains, you know, kind of on the horizon. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, there were lakes everywhere. And my grandparents had a camp um, way up uh, in northern Maine near uh, Baxter State Park, which is where Mount Katahdin is, which is the end of the Appalachian Trail. And they had a camp that you could only get to by boat. Um, Whoa. So you'd go like a mile across a lake and there were no other camps. Like, I think the closest camp was probably like three miles away, four miles away. That is and so it's like, cool. Yeah, it's super cool. And it's like boreal forest almost there. Like you're kind of on the edge of like sort of boreal forest. So it just feels super wild. And there's moose and there's bears and, you know, um, and like a lot of the time you couldn't cross the lake to go to the camp because if a storm blew in, the lake was too rough. Um, you know, so you just got used to like, yeah, storm blew in. We're, we're stuck at camp for a couple of days. Um and so you just got used to that as a kid, just being outside, swimming in lakes. Um, and then, you know, when I went to college, I got into backpacking and I, I started reading Thoreau and Gary Snyder and people like that. Ooh, and you like Gary Snyder? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I learned about Gary Snyder by uh, reading Jack Kerouac and it just took yeah, me off on Well, me too, man. That was that was uh, my senior year of high school. I had, I had discovered Kerouac already and then I read the Dharma Bums and I was like, this is it. And then and then I found out Gary Snyder was a, you know, a real person. Wow. Um, and I kind of really went to school on his writing, you know, like that was really Really? Yeah. From my late teens through my 20s i mean and to some degree still like he's i would say he's probably influenced me more than anybody else in terms how to live a life um and i've had a chance to meet him and spend some time with him oh Uh, what yeah and um and that he kind of was the doorway to a whole bunch of other sort of environmental writers that have been mentors to me as well yeah, I, um, I was hiking around the uh, the fire lookouts here in Washington, mm. and then I saw a book that was like Poets on the Peaks. And at that time, I'd kind of lost my luster for love for poetry. Um, and I was reading that book, and then I learned all about like how the poets were tied to the fire lookouts here, and it like reinvigorated me. And I got into uh, it's what pushed me into more trail running and backpacking. Oh and, sure, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. It reinvigorated my love for poetry again because like that's just more of my styles, like that beat poetry, you know. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and like the um, 
And I love getting to learn about like Kerouac's um, taking like that very urban culture in and placing it in in basically the wilderness and, and seeing mm-hmm. him deal with that. It, it was so cool to me just because like my conception at, at before that of, of what the wilderness because I grew up in Idaho in a town of 300 um, mm-hmm. for like mm-hmm. a few years and I moved there from San Francisco, the Bay Area. And like I thought the wilderness was just like you for lack of a better word, kind of like like rednecks and like, you know, drinking all the time and just like um, when it, it came to animals and like hunting, like I, I very much respect that. But the relationship with hunting in that way was like we're going to go get hammered and party and like hunt and like teach their right. own. But like that culture never like fit me. But I sure, kind of like sure. the wilderness. So when I mm-hmm. would learn about like uh, Stephen Ranella of like Meat Eater and then uh, Gary Snyder, like mm-hmm. – that was a culture that I was able to to um, to align myself with, and even like you know David Thoreau and among mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, no, quite. Yeah, I mean, I think for myself, I think I. So I mean, it, where you grew up sounds very similar to where I grew up. You know, like I was in a town of seven hundred people. You know, mm-hmm. in Maine. Um, and there were like a lot of like Vietnam vets and, um, you know, it was like pretty libertarian in a lot of ways. And, um, but I, you know, I think I, I, I was trying to make sense of, you know, how to live there and how to make meaning out of it. Because, you know, the way that I, you know, lived, we cut all our own wood and stacked our own wood and, you know, had a wood cook stove and we had a big garden and, you know, and that didn't look like what I saw on TV, you know, like, you know, TV was all these kids living in suburbs and, you know, like I wanted to skateboard, but there's no place to skateboard, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Um, so like, it wasn't until I, like all of a sudden when I read Gary Snyder, I was like, Oh, here's someone who has like, an articulate view of what it means to live in a rural wild place and can do so like skillfully and thoughtfully, um, and articulate that in a really beautiful way. Um, you know, and then like, yeah, you're right. The hunting thing, I, I completely agree with. Cause I, you know, we grew up, you know, you, I can remember my, my dad didn't hunt, but a lot of people around us did. And, you know, like how you see deer hanging from, you know, people's t- trees. And you remember like my dad driving when I was like four years old, someone had just shot a bear and, you know, we went and looked at this bear they just shot. Um, but it, it kind of kept me going. Like I, I, I've never ended up hunting myself, but I, I've definitely, at one point I thought I was going to, and I spent a bunch of time at the university of Alaska Fairbanks. Oh yeah. Um, studying with native elders there and, whoa, and, um, you know, and really studying hunting traditions. And I, another person who ended up being a big mentor of mine was a guy named Richard Nelson, who literally just passed away like a week ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he was an anthropologist and he lived for like 15 years with native people, um, in Alaska, lived with Inuits, lived with Koyakon Athabascans and, and wrote these beautiful, thoughtful books about them and their cultures and about hunting. And then he kind of based his whole life around their teachings living in Southeast Alaska. Um, and he wrote a book called the Island within that's all about, him going to this one island um, in, in southeast Alaska and hunting there, um, and and these really thoughtful, beautiful essays about you know the native teachings and how to embody those and these relationships with animals, 
Um, and, you know, and, and his, and the way that he was, he lived his uh, subsistence life, his whole life, you know? Whoa. Um, so, you know, it can certainly be done, but it, yeah, I, I wrestled with the same things when I, when I was a kid, you know, um, you know, and living here in Maine now, you know, like I hear gunshots out the door and stuff and that's, you know, and, and I'm glad that there are people who still have that relationship, uh, with the land and with other animals. And, um, you know, often we get polarized in our culture around like hunters and non-hunters and, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I, you know, I want to honor the people who do it in a respectful and thoughtful way. Yeah. And, and I do as well. And even despite, regardless of what kind of like cultural, um, skin that they put over it, as long as it's like, you know, appropriate or not appropriate, but respectful to themselves. And then, you know, the animals, um, Right, of course. Yeah. 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 But, and I really enjoyed like what I've fallen in love with though is like that combination between um uh, learning like the wilderness skills and then learning how to run and using like my mm-hmm. my athleticism for instance to be able to feed my family like that and also learning about like the um the respect and, and like the reservation um that you have towards those animals like it's just it's such a cool experience for me you know Oh, a hundred percent. Well, I th- that's one of the things that I absolutely love about about trail running is like you know you're moving through this landscape just quickly and beautifully and efficiently and quietly, and as a result, you run into animals. You know, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, just a few days ago, I was I was running and uh, ran into a you know I was probably like. 10 feet from a deer, you know, and it went mm-hmm. running across in front of me. And then I, you know, I stopped and kind of t- made a little bow and kept going. And there was another deer as well, you know, and, and oh, I just cool. love like, we're all just kind of there running around in the woods together, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that, you know, you have an experience like that and your world gets a little bigger. Yeah, it does. And so you, you were, when you're in college, you started backpacking. Were you running at the time or? Uh, I would say so when I was in college, I'd say that I was like a casual runner, you know, I, I, when I was, so when I was in high school, I played soccer, I grew up like Nordic skiing. Um, but I, I, uh, yes, but I got really interested in backpacking through reading Gary Snyder actually. And, and I think also I was just becoming aware that, that that was a thing, you know, I think, uh, especially being in Maine with the Appalachian trail right there. Um, you know, you'd meet through hikers kind of passing through once in a while. And, Mm -hmm. um, so I remember when I went off to college, there was kind of a, a crux moment where, um, my dad was going to buy me a TV before I went, you know, to, to college. And I was like, can I get a backpack instead? Oh, wow. And he was like, uh, sure. You, are you sure? And I was like, definitely. And that was it from then on. Like I kind of, you know, really kind of went whole hog on it. And, you know, I was involved in the outing club and, um, yeah, I ended up working my summers as a whitewater rafting guide, you know, up in Northern Maine. Um, and that was right next to the Appalachian trail. So on my days off, I could go hiking. Um, and so did, yeah, I did a lot of hiking and backpacking, went to school for a little while in Alaska. Um, and, Really through my 20s, it was all about hiking and backpacking. And, you know, I'd go running two or three times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was cool. Um, you know, three, four miles, maybe nothing too crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and then when I got into my 30s, um, I really got into sea kayaking, uh, like in a really intensive way. 
What um, got you into sea kayaking? Like, was there like a moment where you're like, oh my gosh, I love this? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I grew up around water. There are all these lakes around me, you know, so I just grew up canoes and water and swimming and all that. So, you know, and I think I've always been kind of a water person on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, so I, I think I became aware of sea kayaking probably like end of high school. Um, and then when I was in college, I actually got a thousand dollar scholarship from outside uh, from backpacker magazine for like outdoor and environmental leadership. Um, so I went out and bought a sea kayak with it. Um, and, and I, so through my twenties, I, I, I started paddling, you know, the ocean was kind of intimidating to me. So it took me a while to kind of, first I did lakes and then I kind of started to get on the ocean. And I took, took some classes, got some education. Um, but then one, and then I ended up doing like, I spent, I did a week long um, solo trip in Glacier Bay in Alaska. Whoa. Um, yeah, you know, so that was, that was like kind of the first big kayaking thing. Was that um, the first time that you did like a big just trip in general? The first time I, yeah, something like that. Yeah, you know, like, because Glacier Bay is like, you know, that's real deal wilderness. And, you know, you know, there's bears and whales and wolves and, you know, you're, you're, you're out there. So, um, yeah, I, I got I got a question because like the, this whole concept um, of, you know, when people do like expeditions and stuff um, for for most people that I talk to, it, mm-hmm. it often feels like it's like an arm's length away. Like it's not something that's attainable. Um, it's for, you know, sort of like professionals or something like that. And like I'm of the mindset where like just through research, you know, you learn that there's many different ways to be able to have those experiences. Totally. Mm-hmm. What I find really interesting though is is like that didn't even seem like a barrier to you it's just like oh that sounds like fun like is that was that unique to you or were you like where did you get the- um so i think i had i think i mean it, it was a question of scaling up you know like i um you know i had been doing some backpacking trips before that um so i'd you know been out for you know three, four days on the Appalachian trail in new England. Um, I'd spent, I spent like a week out on the PCT in the Alpine lakes area there. Um, and yeah, but I, so in my, but in my twenties, you know, I, I really just, I was still super passionate about Alaska as I still am now. Um, and then like, I was like, huh, Glacier Bay. Interesting. And I was like, okay, so if I, so I, it, I basically like prepped myself for like two years for that trip. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I did, you know, so here in Maine, Maine suit is, is amazing for kayaking because we have actually, um, like more coastline than California. Uh, Whoa. Cause we have all these inlets and islands and fjords and peninsulas. <laughs> um, so there's actually like 7,000 miles of coastline in Maine. Oh my gosh. Um, and there's a trail called the Maine Island trail where you can kayak the entire length of the coast and camp out on islands the whole way. Um, so, so I'd started to do like kayak camping that way. Um, and kind of, again, it was just building up the skill set, you know, building up the skill set. And so I finally pulled the trigger, you know, I think I was like 27 or something, went to Glacier Bay and, and it was amazing. And I, you know, I prepared myself really well. I had a dry suit and I had all the right safety gear, you know, I, I, I knew what I was doing. Um, and it was amazing, you know, but I think also, I always think about the fact that, um, it's more possible than most people let themselves think, you know, I I think so much of what I do as an educator is just like help people realize their own possibility and capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, so when I'm leading trips with kids, I'm always like, okay, guys, so here we are. Could you do this without me next time? Mm-hmm. You know? And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess we could. And, and that's that notion where it's like, I don't ever do this. You do this, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I don't know. I think it's all about, like, being practical and strategic and scaling up. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Anyway, so I think I think that's a – I think – but I think, yeah. You know, like, I when I, when I went on that trip to Glacier Bay, you know, I remember I, the same day that I left on my trip, which I was out for a week, mm-hmm. there was a couple – who were on their honeymoon. They're from Utah. Um, they'd never been in a kayak. Um, they only had cotton sweatshirts and jeans and like sneakers Whoa. and like canned food. Um, they'd really hardly done any camping. Uh-huh. Um, and like, I know, like I have a lot of wilderness kind of professional friends and, you know, who would look at that and be like, that is not okay. Um, but you know what? They did it. Hmm, we're, a high, we're a highly we're a highly adaptable species you know like we figure it out oh yeah we do you know like so i i on one hand you want to be careful on the other hand you know that's what adventure is about you know like i always bear in mind that whenever people get worked up about kayaking or you know water stuff so in the 1820s when alaska belonged to russia um this is a true story. These four indentured servants from Finland were in what is now Sitka, Alaska, mm-hmm. and they wanted to escape. So they stole a canoe, and in the winter, they paddled from Sitka, Alaska to Astoria, Oregon. Whoa. With no food. <laughs> I don't even think they had a gun. Oh my gosh. Um, and they were also like watching out for like native tribes that would attack them along the way. And that time of year, it's dark, like, all the time and cold and wet. Oh, my gosh. And they did, you know, because, like, we're a highly adaptable species. We figure it out. Wow. That's incredible. Right? Yeah. So, I don't know. I always, I always bear I always bear both sides of that equation kind of, you know, in mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah. So, anyway, um, but to get back to the kayaking, I, you know... Later on, after that that Glacier Bay trip, I did another really big expedition in the Arctic, some other solo expedition, and then um, spent a whole summer kind of in Alaska and ended up being around some like pretty high level like mountain athletes, mm-hmm. you know, like people who are really really impressive backcountry skiers, and and I was like, huh, I wanna I wanna get really good at something, mm-hmm. and I was like, huh, I live in Maine on the coast. I should get good at sea kayaking. Um, and I ended up sort of through a variety of circumstances finding this guy named John Carmody, who's this amazing uh, sea kayak coach. Really interesting. What's that? During that time, were you like career driven? At, like, you know, did you have a professional career that you yeah, were trying I was to? Yeah, I was teaching the whole time. Oh, wow. Yeah. So essentially, I would like teach and then I would have like summers and breaks and stuff to do stuff. Okay. Um, so, and, and I was able to kind of, um, like maneuver some things around so that in some cases I even got a little bit of financial support from my school to go to conferences and things that were, you know, kind of in the neighborhood of the places I was going. Mm, That's Um, nice. Yeah. 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 Totally. You figure out whatever you can to make it work. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's just figuring it's being creative, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, but anyway, I found this guy, John Carmody, who's, you know, like this amazing sea kayak coach. He was a veterinarian for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he gave it up to teach kayaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and just sort of, he's a really just extraordinary, like teacher, human teacher. Um, and so for the first half of my thirties, I was just like kayaking a ton, surf kayaking, you know, and had a lot, a lot of stuff in in weather and conditions and rocks and surf and tide and what's surf um, kayaking. Uh, so, I mean, you can take a regular sea kayak and you can just paddle it in surf, but I actually have a, um, a, a, a kayak that's designed for surf and it's kind of almost like a surfboard that you sit inside of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, got fin- it's got fins on the bottom. Um, it's got like hard edges, uh, so you can carve. Um, and so you get going like, I don't know, 20 something miles an hour down the sides of these waves, just carving back and forth. Um, and you can catch way more waves than a surfboard can because, you know, you get off the wave and you've got a paddle, you can just spin yourself right around and hop on the next wave. Mm-hmm. Um, it's cool. Yeah. So I, so anyway, so I did all, I was kayaking a lot and then I kind of had this big sort of life change event where, uh, when I was 35, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. Mm-hmm. Oh no. Um, and, um, and I was like, I was super healthy. I was young. I had an organic garden, you know, like mm-hmm. it's just one of those things that just kind of happened. Um, Adversity happens, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that I had enough tools in the bank that I, when it happened, I was like, okay, I know how to deal with this. Hmm. You know, like I had a, I'd already been meditating for years and, you know, and I'd done hard things. And so, so, so that, yeah, those those coping skills that you were, you know, just developing for the sake of, you know, you're pursuing your interests, they did translate for you when that. Oh happened. yeah. No question. No question. Um, you know, like when it happened, I was like, all right, here we go. Let's do this. Um, and it really forced some, some really good introspection time. Um, and really, yeah, it was good. It ended up being like an amazing growth experience. And so over, and that kind of kicked off sort of a cycle of change where um, within the next couple of years after that, you know, I started a master's degree in creative writing um, and my marriage ended up kind of breaking apart. Uh, and But again, I, I, I knew what to do. You know, I had the tools so that when it happened, it was hard and it was scary and it was all that stuff. But at the same time, uh, I knew I knew how to proceed the right way and grow from it. Because all your activities that you do are like, like sea kayaking and and with like running or backpacking. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's some moment where you have voluntary adversity, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's that type two fun thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you know, like the greater you're able to go into the, those places of suffering and pain and adversity, the greater joy you're able to encounter as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but coming out of the, the cancer and the divorce when I started running, um, and it was like, I had been born to it, you know, like all of a sudden I was like, wow. Um, and yeah. And so quickly advanced to, you know, running ultras. And then I was, 
um, you know, running around New England, but also, you know, I was spending my master's degree was in the summer. I'd come out to the Pacific Northwest for that Tacoma. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was out, I was out on the West coast every summer. So I was, you know, running in Yosemite and the North Cascades and the Olympics and, you know, such um, beautiful settings. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, and it's just kind of taken off from there. Um, Was it when you started to, to get into running heavily was, did you have ultras in mind or did that just happen over time? I so um, I I did in the back of my mind, but it um, that wasn't really my priority. I I was really I was interested in that. You know, mm-hmm. I had read I'd read to Born to Run, like many mm-hmm. people had, um, and and sort of his hypothesis that you know we are designed to run. You know, already fit in with kind of my worldview. You know, that like, you know, we are these sort of at the end of the day, we still have these sort of paleolithic bodies that are designed to be outside and being physical and doing things. Um, and so that made sense to me, you know, thinking about running 50 or 100 miles still seemed like pretty outside my remit. Um, but then again, like when you've done other things that seemed impossible, it seems a little less impossible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, and I, and again, like I just kind of scaled up, you know, I started by, you know, just running every day and then running longer distances and then running longer distances in like mountains. Um, and you know, pretty soon I was running 50 K's and 50 milers. When, when you were at that time and now, Mm -hmm. um, when you think about like an organized, uh, ultra run, Mm -hmm. um, and then you think about like going and tagging, like, you know, whether it's, uh, bagging some peaks or doing like a, a self-supported, uh, a loop in the mountains, which one's more appealing for you? Uh, I think they're just different, you know, like they're just different. Um, I, I mean, I value the thing for me that uh, about the the races that I think is is useful is the community. Yeah. Um, you know, because so much of the running I do ends up being on my own, mm-hmm. um, which I love. You know, I'm a classic introvert, and that's like when I figure things out. And you know, um, but there's something pretty amazing about running with other people too, and the people you meet. Um, so that that part is really great. Um, all, but I'll, you know, that said, at the end of the day, I'm kind of more. I te- do tend to be more of a do-it-yourself kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I, I do like kind of self-created adventures. There's no question about that. You know, and and it's interesting to see now in the ultra world where, you know, as we get more and more of these sort of D1 level kind of elite runners. You know, the sport is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a bad thing, but I think there's more and more interest in people just kind of going out and having an adventure. Yeah. Uh, and I think and I think that's totally rad. Yeah, I get and I ask that like is you know, self-interested and also for people too, because like it's it's when you do something, it can be challenging, I find, to to gauge your um success because it can be so relative, right? Like right. N- Looking at something, you know, with running for, for me, uh, just just for the audience, I guess, to take them through it. It's like when I would first start running, it's like, OK, if I'm going to do a 5K, I'm training to complete the 5K. It's my B goal. But my A goal is, is to be competitive and like through that pursuit of doing that and moving up in the mileage. um that was never that would never like inspire me to to do it it would never excite me it was like 
mm-hmm. I, I was pressuring myself to do it. And then I would get into this, like this, um, this conversation with myself. Well, what's the point of running anyways? Is that like, if you're not right. going to try to be mm-hmm. the best and like, mm-hmm. I'm like, well, it, that's not what makes a, a run for me. I'd find when there's like a really cool boulder field to cross or some rivers to cross <laughs> totally, and, yeah, and like yeah, yeah. single track going through some beautiful forest. And I'm like, Oh wait, okay. So to measure my success is not, you know, how competitive I am. It is perhaps being able to go to these very interesting, uh, you know, features in the forest. Or like you said, is like running with a group of people through, you know, on a beautiful ridge line, or maybe even like developing a high route that's like off trail. Like, mm-hmm. for, and I find that I'm as I talk to like um, r- runners or just really adventurers, I suppose, uh, mm-hmm. is that like th- there's almost like this like you you find out your preferences and then sure. you're able to to build and plan things according to your preferences, whether it's like an organized event or it's self-supported. And like the, how I'm learning personally to gauge my success is like unobstructed self-expression. Like what do I want? Yeah, totally. How to act Mm -hmm. on that, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, like to me at the end of the day, that's the goal for everything, right? Is unobstructed self-expression, you know, like that's, that's the beautiful thing. Um, so yeah, I I, th- I think that's right. I think that's right. And you know, and everybody has different preferences. You know, some some people really value that structure and having like those like very concrete goals. <laughs> um, you know, like I I definitely you know measure some stuff, but you know, I'm not one of these people who's like checking their heart rate monitor every five minutes. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's not what it's about for me. It's more about the kind of person that I become through doing these things. Mm-hmm. That's really the thing I value. Um, and so I, I value the structure of races. I think that's cool. Um, but that's, again, that's not the priority, you know, and like racing is not the priority. The priority is having adventures and being the kind of person who can move efficiently and quickly and beautifully through the mountains um, and do those kind of things. And that's when I was introduced to your to your work and I was listening to that, to mm-hmm. the video that you had on your writing with territory run mm-hmm, run, mm-hmm. and it like struck me because um it was a good example of what i was trying to figure out because i'd feel like insecure um in in some fashion because right. like what if my goal wasn't to be you know that whole thing with my goal isn't to be first and like comparing myself to other people and figuring mm-hmm. out like what actually motivates you and and i think that can be a beautiful thing because then you get to like do that work to where it's like well what do you really like what do you want right now right and like mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. what's right for you and then that that helps with i argue whether it's consciously or subconsciously because some people don't introspectively think about it a lot um and others might is like okay, now how does that affect my whole life? Is like, what are all these actions that I'm doing? Like, are they actually serving me? um, Or or is it just like a knee-jerk reaction to run away from these big feelings that I have and that I don't know how to deal with? And that stuff is rampant in that world. That stuff is rampant. There are so many people who are just like patching over like unresolved emotional issues through like training and kind of basically breaking themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you see that all the time. Um, and so obviously there's lots of people who are perfectly healthy about it too, Yeah, you know, but as, as especially it's been really interesting, you know, cause there is like this narrative you t- you can get sometimes endurance sports of like, 
whoever can suffer the most, you know, <laughs> and like, that's just really not interesting to me, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's not why I'm doing it. Um, you know, and like, I value the suffering that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's definitely like a valuable part of the process, but it's only valuable in, it, it's not valuable just for the sake of its own thing. Um, and so, you know, like I often think of this now, especially as I've gotten more into like physiology of using like sort of hypoxic training and being more efficient with my breathing, um, which just allows me to like feel a lot better for a lot longer. Um, you know, it's super, it's like having a whole nother gear. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm like, you know, as I said, you know, someone the other day, I was like, I mean, you can like... You can, you have the option of like driving your, you know, having no sex drive, no testosterone, feeling tired and weak all the time so that you can come in like 37th in your age group. Um, like that is an option. (laughs) You could also like feel really good, (laughs) you know? And like, so I know where I, I fall on that, you know, like I love pushing myself. I love finding out my limits. I love failing. All that stuff is great. Um, but I also am interested, I'm interested in like the full expression of my human potential. Um, and, and like destroying myself is not really part of that, you know, that's where I, I came into a, uh, into a wall when I was doing jujitsu, because at mm. that point it's like, mm. if, if I want to be highly competitive in this, it's, this is to be my only thing, but within my own, my preferences, I'd find that I'm more interested in my personal development and like developing myself as a person. Um, not for me personally, not developing myself as this, you know, one special specialized jujitsu competitor, you know? Right. Well, I mean, I, and I think that speaks to the whole specialization thing is that, um, you know, if you're specializing, you're probably like limiting some of your capacities, you know, like, um, like I'm definitely more of a generalist in that sense, you know, like I love running. I love ultra running. It's definitely my, it's my jam, but I love kayaking and I love writing and I love cutting wood and I love health stuff and, you know, Mm -hmm. all these different things. And, and I, so often you'll see these athletes who specialize and they end up kind of driving themselves into the ground. Um, you see a lot of injuries because of that. Um, you know, I always think of, there's a, there's a quote, um, by, I think it's Robert Heinlein, where he says, like, a human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a <laughs> building, uh, build a wall, set a bone, uh, cook a meal, fight, uh, program a computer. <laughs> you know, he said specialization is for insects. Um, yeah. You know, and I, and, I, and I think there's something to that, you know, because we didn't evolve you know, our, if you think of the long reach of human history, we didn't evolve to do one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could, you could even take that from physical conditioning anyway. Cause like overuse 100%. injuries and like plateauing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, so I always think about, you know, like you see people, you know, as I've gotten really kind of taken a deep dive into physiology, you see this all the time. You'll see somebody who's a high level athlete and then they like step off, a, they step, uh, step off a curb. Mm-hmm. they like injure themselves for the next six months <laughs> you know yeah. they 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 build up so many weird like compensatory mechanics in their body to allow for that specialization that one little thing can like tw- mm. um 
you know, so to me, it's more like how do, how do, how can I be like a strong, resilient human being, mm-hmm. you know, who can like with capacity, who can like express their like humanity in like authentic, creative ways. And, and that like, I don't even, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but, but that speaks to me in like a, a very, a very deep way. Right. Like that seems mm-hmm. to be like my, in my, like just me as, as a person that that's my, the highest in, thing in my hierarchy. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it speaks to like our genetic inheritance, you know, like, uh, I mean, I think that speaks to the most ancient values on the earth as human beings, you know, like, you know, like we evolved to like be outside and move and lift things and drink water and get enough sleep. And, you know, we didn't evolve to like get five hours of sleep and pound down a bunch of gels and like stare, you know, at our watch every three seconds to make sure that our heart rate window was where it should be. Mm -hmm. And then sit in front of a computer for the next 10 hours at some job, you know, under fluorescent lights and then go back out and like really stress ourselves out with a second run that day. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because all of this is like can feel like to a lot of people like this is what I have to do. But a lot of it's self-imposed, even the nine to five situation, self-imposed. Oh, yeah. I mean, so as an educator, so much of what I do is just help my students and, and other and adults, you know, just to like realize that they have agency in their lives and they have the ability to define define their values and their beliefs and how their life works. You know, I'm like, I'm like, you, you can go to college if, if you want, but you should make sure you want to go to college and you don't have to go to college. Mm -hmm. Right. And you can work in an office or you could work in a lumber yard or you could live, you know, in a cave in Hawaii and eat Mm -hmm. fruit, you know, like Mm -hmm. all those things are options. And you can even do all three during the course of your life. Yeah, you know, yes. like, you know, like it's it's all it's kind of up to you. Like your your life will be as big as you decided that it is. Mm-hmm. And that's like the quintessential aspect of adventure, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, like it's it, that's how you cultivate that kind of imagination and vision and like capacity. You know, like because then you say like, oh, look there, I could do that. Okay, what are the steps to doing that? You know, and letting yourself own that desire. You know, and most people I find just kind of stymie it. They're afraid. They're afraid to to admit that they want to do those things. So they just kind of kind of repress it in a lot of cases. I, I I've seen that in, in a variety of forms, especially drawing, because I've like I've mm-hmm. in in my pursuit of just uh, building my skills for graphic design i've been uh, taking some drawing courses and i try to introduce uh, whether it's students teachers that i work with and just other adults that i know into like drawing and you, you see it, it's like i can't draw a cir- like that fixed mindset like i i don't know how to draw a circle or i don't know how to do that very well it's like well that that's why you, that's mm-hmm. why i'm asking you if you want to like learn to draw with me (laughs) right right exactly yeah well i mean yeah like so for instance um i have one of my students um uh she has a fear of 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 uh, flying Mm -hmm. and so last weekend she shoot she and her mom flew somewhere and so she um 
I have this nonprofit that I'm involved, I'm involved in, we teach breathing exercises to teens with anxiety. And so I gave her the app and I was like, here, you can use the app. And she's used to doing breath work now. So she knew what to do. And she got, I was like, when she got back, I was like, how'd it go? And she's like, oh, it, was, it was okay, but it's still really hard. And hmm. I'll never, I'll never be able to figure this out. And I was like, you're 18 years old. I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> that like you can figure this out like i'm pretty sure that you that this is not a set point in your life it is if you decide that it is right but Mm -hmm. that it's not we're a highly creative you know species Mm -hmm. with like a lot of adaptability and ability to like figure things out i bet you could figure this out So, yeah, no, there's no, and like, and drawing is so interesting because I see the same thing with music. Once you get into like stuff that's a little more creative, so many people are like, yeah, no, I, I can't do that. Or, you know, I, I had to stop doing that. There's, they just have a lot of stories around it. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're like, here, just draw a line. Okay. Draw another line. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. (laughs) What if you drew three lines? What could that be? You know? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting. I have this, like, I direct this adult community steel drum band, um, you know, and it's like all these people, like, um, I mean, there's people that we have all ages. We have like literally from like age 18 to like age 80 in there. Um, But there's people who a lot of people, most of them like got somewhere around age 50 and they're like, I want to learn a musical instrument, Mm. you know? And it's so cool to see, right? Like they're not, they're not setting the world on fire. They're not gonna be, you know, they're not the best musicians in the world, but they're like good. You know, mm-hmm. and, and it kind of exists for each one of them to kind of fulfill their possibility. And that goes to like the unobstructed self-expression, right? It's like the, exactly mm-hmm. most of the time. It's not even the point isn't to be the best. It's like, no, exactly. It, and if exactly. you become the best, it's like I would I would. But who am I to say? But I would recommend it, you your reaction to be, oh, I'm nicely surprised. Like, I'm really good <laughs> at this. Like, as because right. if you get so obsessed over that level of perfection, like that, that's going to obstruct your ability to to perform or, or really enjoy and like dive deeply into that thing you're doing right right exactly exactly it's about the process right Mm -hmm. it's about it's about giving yourself to that process of learning and iterating and deliberate practice and being humble and growing that's what i mean that's what that's what it's about um yeah so i I think there's no question i think that's a and and so i think about that a lot is just how to help human beings own their own capacity for growth mm-hmm. realizing there allow them to to have the room to realize their own potential yeah yeah you know i mean at the end of the day so much of what i do is just trying to help people realize what they can do mm-hmm. i'm interested what's this hypoxic training this is very yeah so um so i'm really interested in in the in the last few years i've gotten really interested in this so um you know, I think we have sort of these various sort of breathing traditions that have emerged and, you know, over thousands of years in some cases, right? If you look at yoga and pranayama breathing, um, you know, like there was a Russian guy named Buteko who, uh, who like developed this like breathing system that basically like more or less helps you get rid of asthma. Um, you know, there's all these different systems that have been developed over time. Um, and so I've kind of done a deep dive. I go to, um, there's a sort of a gym performance center in the area that I go to uh, called the Distance Project. And the guy who runs it is an ultra runner. Um, mm-hmm. 
and we collaborate on a lot of stuff. Um, but he's really into that and influence. There's a guy named Brian McKenzie, um, who kind of started CrossFit endurance and, and, Mackenzie kind of threw the sort of the endurance world kind of on its ear a little bit by showing that, you know, you don't have to just run lots and lots of miles. You can, you can through like interval training and breath work and things like that, you can actually do quite well without, with a lot less miles on your body. Ooh. Uh, super interesting stuff. And cool. so, yeah, I mean, essentially it comes down to the fact of, of developing CO2 tolerance. Um, so like when you, when you need to take a breath, it's not because you need oxygen. Your body has plenty of oxygen inside of it. It's because you're trying to let off some of this CO, this, car, this carbon dioxide. Um, and you're trying to get, you know, enough oxygen and carbon dioxide into the muscles together to kind of make everything work. Um, but you can through like, you know, I, I do a lot of workouts where I'm breathing through my nose only. Um, and if I'm doing that, that keeps me in an aerobic state. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I'm in an aerobic state, my nervous system isn't getting all jacked up. Um, I'm burning fat as opposed to glucose. Um, my heart rate is staying down. Um, and so through training that, you know, I can get, make myself much more efficient. Um, and as a result, like, you know, I'll be in a race and I'll be 30, 40 miles in and I'll be feeling great. Mm. And there's people next to me huffing and puffing and all kind of freaked out. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm just trotting along here. Right. And if you practice it, you can get faster and faster doing that as well. Um, you know, so I have a friend, uh, who ran the Vermont 100, uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and he, up through mile 70, he was only breathing through his nose. Wow. Um, so he like finished the race, just smiling, feeling good under 24 hours. Um, oh, nice. I mean, it, it kind of gives you a whole nother gear, honestly. Like it kind of feels like an unfair advantage to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> like I like, you know, um, and so now like basically anytime I work out or anytime I run, mm-hmm. I pretty much do it with, you know, with my with mouth closed. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I need to, I can open my mouth, you know, but your mouth isn't really designed for breathing. It's kind of like an emergency breathing system. Mm-hmm. Whereas you're breathing through your nose, there's like hairs in your nose that are filtering the air. If you breathe through your mouth, it's kind of a cue that something's wrong. Mm. Um, you know, and that's a gear, you know, like if you need to sprint super fast, you can use that. Um, mm-hmm. But as soon as you do that, your nervous system gets jacked up, your heart rate goes up, you start burning glucose, and it's much less sustainable for endurance. That's interesting. Uh, it wow. is super interesting. And I'll even like sometimes I'll tape my mouth shut when I sleep at night mm-hmm. uh, and I sleep better. Whoa, that's cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. If practice uh, running, doing like uh, short runs with uh, water in my mouth just to be able to habituate mm-hmm. breathing through my nose. And yeah. it's cool because I remember when I was in, uh, a teenager, um, I was talking to someone about music and they're they're informing me, you know, that they had to breathe through their diaphragm to be able to like hold notes for longer. And mm-hmm. I remember I was never able to, I would always um, breathe in the top of my chest and I wasn't able to expand my right, belly. Right. And like, I think it was two, three years ago once, you know, I was consistently doing athletics and I was in yoga and all of a sudden I was able to like have a pretty high level of control of my diaphragm. And now that's all that I do is breathe in my nose and breathe in my diaphragm. And that, that wasn't mm-hmm. my life before. 
Oh, it's a beautiful thing. And as a result, like you're so much more relaxed, right? You're getting more air, you're getting more oxygen, your nervous system is more relaxed. Um, I mean, so I do all this work with mindfulness and breathing exercises with, uh, with kids Mm -hmm. and adults, but most largely kids. And I'm part of this nonprofit called physiology first. And we, we teach breathing exercises and kind of other kind of cutting edge techniques to, to kids all over the place to help them kind of deal with anxiety and stress. Um, but what science is showing us is that literally the, the best tool we have to manage anxiety mm-hmm. is slow controlled nasal exhale. Mm, like a, like a seven seconds breathing in two seconds I, or whatever, in. or whatever you can do, you know, Oh, like, really? Okay. Whatever you can do. I mean, yeah, the longer, the better, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, but if, if, if a kid can just like slowly exhale and then hold mm-hmm. like that, you're automatically that cues your nervous system to like relax, go right, go right down. Mm. You know, um, and that obviously for, it doesn't, there's certainly obviously people who have anxiety where that's not going to do at all, but in a lot of case, in the majority of cases, that's going to do quite a bit. Um, you know, so, um, I think anyway, it's, it's really interesting to see that, um, and to see, um, as I teach this stuff, how hungry people are for it. Mm-hmm. Um, cause so many people are so anxious um, and stressed out. And, um, and so like, I have like ninth graders being like, can we do breath work today? Mm. Oh, like, that's so cool. I'm like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, great. Awesome. You know? Um, so yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. I think we're kind of, again, it's one of these things where we're kind of at an inflection point in our culture where, um, uh, we're just looking at different ways of doing things. And, you know, again, like, intentional breath work is as old as the human race, probably on some level, mm-hmm. um, you know, like I'm sure our ancestors when they didn't have, um, you know, morphine and things like that, if they, you know, had to set a bone, yeah, you know, they, they were probably breathing pretty intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think we're just kind of rediscovering, you know, what the human body is supposed to be doing. Yeah, Wim Hof was like one, mm. one of my um, mm-hmm. my breakaways into that when I learned about his breathing techniques and um, managing, you know, the cold the cold swimming in like Arctic environments and um, climbing mountains and shorts and stuff. And like, I just didn't realize that your body had like this potential for whether it's like euphoria or even these relaxed states, all with like not even with drugs, just with breathing. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. I'm like that is like the coolest thing that I could imagine. I was, um, and I've been trying to, you know, teach youth about it and even adults because like there's, there's three adults in particular that I know where if they ever feel like tense, right. Um, Mm -hmm. they'll take, they'll take fucking muscle relaxers. And I'm just like, (laughs) what? Like what? It's like, I have high blood pressure. They gave me these so that to help with my blood pressure and help with stress. And I'm like, there's like, you know, I'm not, you know, teach their own. Um, I don't want to get into like any like medical things, but it's like, there's like a natural way for you to, to manage a lot of this. And it, and it feels good. Cause those muscle relaxers, like I used to take them recreationally when I was a kid, like they don't, it <laughs> right, just makes right. you go to like, go out. Like, right. Totally. Well, I, yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, it's a question I always ask kids. I'm like, all right, so what do you do when you want to like relax, go to sleep at night, you know, or what do you do when you want to like kind of perk yourself up? Right. And they're usually like, uh, caffeine. 
and weed yeah <laughs> you know instagram right and i'm like just so you know you actually have better tools than that right um and it turns out you know that we're finding out that the neurobiological signature of all this stuff is that like you know you can you know relax yourself and perform at a really high level mm-hmm. uh, whereas you're taking muscle relaxers you're not performing at a high level you're no. barely standing up right yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting because like yeah i'm finding even when i was when i do like calisthenics and stuff and you learn mm-hmm. that 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 mind muscle connection um you realize that you're able to like move or um what is it engage muscles that you never thought you would have had before like you get like there's so much like potential of like um control and like stimulus of your body that mm-hmm. that goes untapped mm-hmm Oh, yeah. No, it's it's incredible. I mean, I, I think that, you know, in so many levels, we're kind of so many of us are kind of divorced a little bit from our bodies, um, you know, because we're sitting in desks and we're under fluorescent lights. And, you know, so I think I, I think a lot of it is just trying to get people to move more and to, you know, just to kind of realize that they, they have that ability, you know, like. <laughs> Um, like when I, I teach this brain science class at my school and like, we don't sit in desks, Ooh, really? you know, cause I'm like, you know, I had the kids literally like the first week I was like, I want you to just keep track of how much you're sitting mm-hmm. tomorrow. You're sitting like 10, 10, 11 hours a day, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, well, who here has had like a knee or a hip injury? And they all raise their hand. I'm like, huh, maybe could that be because your hips are all locked up from sitting 10, 11 hours a day? <laughs> and, and, and when you're sitting in that way, are you breathing well? Probably not. Right. You know? Um, so, you know, there's a reason that like ACL injuries have gone up like 400% in the last 15 years. Um, you know, but as long as you know that you can do things to compensate it for it. You know, if, again, if you take responsibility, it seems like when people are are aware of that too, they a lot of people seem to take responsibility for that, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm an optimist. I I I, I tend to hope that people will take ownership of their own lives. Well, like I had a thing when you know when I was growing up, and people are often plagued by it, um, which is like you know you should get healthy and be active for your health. Um, and so people will, you know, when New Year's comes around, they'll set a date and they're like, all right, I'm going to get a gym membership and I'm going to go. And then you have this huge like drop off rate in like February, right? Or March. Right. But what I've came to terms with, like, I didn't change because I got more disciplined. I got changed mm. because I fell in love. And like, right. right. As a repercussion of that, it's like, oh, I really like doing martial arts. I want to get better at this. How do I get better? Oh, I got to I got to be healthy. Like, right. Right. Well, I think some of it, you know, some of it definitely becomes an identity thing, right? Mm -hmm. Once you become a person like I'm someone who does martial arts, then you're like, well, I'm someone who does martial arts. So therefore I do martial arts. (laughs) That's some of it. And then I I also think that, you know, the, the best way to like kind of protest something is just offer a better option, (laughs) Mm, you know? So like with my students, you know, when I'm talking about like, you know, whether it's mindfulness and distraction or, you know, how they're dealing with technology, you know, I, I definitely like go through them like, yeah, if you're checking your phone all the time, you're like, you know, you're going to develop dopamine resistance and that's going to be harder for you to be happy. And if you have your phone and depending where you're carrying it, it could kind of fry your gonads and you won't be able to have kids. Like that's all true. 
but I'm not just going to tell you negative stuff. I'm also going to like talk to you about flow states and how like if you can develop like patterns of like deep focus, um, then all of a sudden like you can have like the coolest adventures in the world and feel amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, because cool. I don't want to just like wag my finger at them and be like, well, you don't know what you're doing. You know, like mm-hmm. I want to be like, hey, I want to I want to create an invitation and say like, hey, guys, look, look what could be. Mm-hmm. This is the end of the day, we all want to feel fulfilled in some fashion, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we want to feel like we have some agency in our life. Mm-hmm. And in in the right application, it can it can help the person tremendously. That's how I see with like the kids that I work with who are emotionally and behaviorally uh, delayed is like mm-hmm. a lot of the things that they do is like, oh, you're looking for like to be stimulated and excited, but like bullying someone may do that for you, but no one's right. going to help you do that. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. We And we all have our own versions of those strategies, right? Like we all have our sort of compensatory strategies that like they don't work that well, but <laughs> they work well enough for mm-hmm. now. Yeah, yeah. Right? They don't work. Yeah. You're like, man, eating a ring ding every day, like that was for the first couple months, it was okay. I knew I probably shouldn't be doing it, but you know. But then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I definitely should not have been doing that, you know. (laughs) Uh, So yeah. So I think, yeah, we I mean we all have our versions, but the more that we can, you know, kind of be mindful of that and also just take try to be honest and like of like what what effect are we getting from that compensatory mechanism you know like mm-hmm. like how am i feeling while i'm eating this ring thing like right mm-hmm. right like am i is this actually tasting good or is this just a am i just running a pattern that like actually doesn't feel that good yeah, that's that's fun to do with uh with people in a variety of backgrounds because like um i'll get like my sister would be a good example where she she likes to use meth a lot and mm-hmm. like um, the, the thing that I was trying to get with her was like, all right, I is, don't, you know, bring the substance around me or around my son. Um, mm-hmm. but that's what you're doing. I get it. You know, you, you're making your choices. You're not hurting me. You're not hurting anyone else. Like let's get over like, Oh, I don't do that. Or like trying to hide it. And let's just like, talk about it. Like, what does it feel like when you want that? Like, what is like, what makes you want to seek it, you know? And what's the challenges and when you're trying to get it and when you don't have it. And like, let's just talk like people on that. Cause I want to really understand right. what it's like, you know, to be, I want to, I want to express, is it empty? Yeah, I want to express empathy, not sympathy, but empathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only way to do that is just to be honest. Like, I'm not here to fix you or to change you because, like, that's not my choice. It's yours, you know? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, I I have the exact same conversations with, you know, students. You know, I've, you know, definitely, like, it's pretty common. I'll usually have it at a given point. A couple students I work with really closely who are having kind of a tough time and they're kind of stuck in some patterns. And I just try to be really honest with them. You know, I try to, like, hold that space and create that container for them. And I'm just like, all right, here we are. Like, this is the deal. Like, no judgment. Like, I get it. I've been there. Um, you're right. And, you know, and the behaviors behind meth or Instagram can be the same, mm-hmm. same pattern, right? It's just different things you're filling it in with. Yeah. So, like, okay, so let's look at that and let's see if we can, what we can do to shift that pattern. Mm-hmm. 
And that, that's what exactly like what I come to where it's like you you might be doing different activities, but not very different. Like we all have like impulses and, and stuff like that. And like all these sometimes I find myself even with running, like we've talked about before, you know, people putting themselves in these um, these routines that are might not be like good for them for who they are, but it might be good for their like their competitiveness and running. Right. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah. and like. I've had myself do that where it's like, all right, 60 miles a week. Um, and you know, that's my peak and I'm going to keep it for like two weeks, but I'm going to hit 60 miles and I don't care, you know, what things I have to avoid to do that for me personally. Right. Right. Um, sure. Sure. And all I'm doing at that point is I'm like, I'm obstructed. I'm, I'm kind of hurt because I'm caught up in ego and I'm pushing myself to do this. And like, it's just all these messy things. And it's kind of similar to, you know, someone who, you know, might be making these different choices in a different context. But right. we're kind of right. doing Yeah, it's the same. same it's the same pattern, right? Like, yeah, like if you really need to run that hundred miler with, with that broken ankle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if that's, that's what's important to you. Right. Even if it's the expense of X, Y, and Z, maybe you should be asking the question of why you're doing that. Mm-hmm. And you know, even like workaholism is a good example too. You know, if you don't have a social life and your work's just towering, towering over, but mm-hmm. most people, you know, might not say anything because it's, it's not, it doesn't look so ugly, you know? Well, and in fact, it's honored. Yeah, it, it really right? is. Yeah, you know, you know, like, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. That's also like, right? Certain things are accepted or honored, you know, and like, right? Like, how many people, when you ask them how they're doing, they say busy, right? Yeah, and they're like, but it's good, but it's good, you know. And you're like, uh, I'm not sure that it is, right? Like, <laughs> some people, you're like, they're like, I'm busy because I'm just so excited about everything I'm doing, and that's great, right? Mm-hmm. But there's other people that you're like, oh, you are busy because you don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, I, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and then people wonder why they're anxious, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, no, I think I think that's, um, yeah, I, I've that kind of that's been one of the nuts I've been trying to crack these last few months because I I have a sort of a group that I facilitate um, that meets once a month to talk about brain science and and Ooh. and um but it's really interesting because um, the group that's ended up coming every week, it's the same group of women and they all have sons. Whoa. They all have boys. And I, you can tell they're just trying to figure out how to deal with this. And, and, and one of the big questions is technology. How do they deal with technology? You know, and it's an addiction thing. Yeah. That's, you know, like, um, so I've been really trying to like take a deep dive into basically the psychology of addiction, mm. um, to try to like figure out, you know, and I don't think there's a silver bullet. I think it's a com. I think it's like, I kind of, like I said, I think you, you have to like, you know, you know, inform them thoughtfully and skillfully about, you know, the ramifications of their behaviors, mm-hmm. but then you also have to offer them like a better option. Yeah. You know, like a different identity. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. like what I, when I was um, growing up or when I was a kid, I would use substances, um, a variety of substances and like, like the muscle relaxers. At one point when I was a kid, I take a muscle relaxer every day mm-hmm. and like, and there are somas and it's like, this is nuts. And then I, you know, smoke weed all like all the time and as much as I can and like everything right. just to the max. And like, I'd mm-hmm. see how I wasn't having any of these, um, 
I didn't, there wasn't anything to my life other than work, school, drugs. And like, I eventually would come away from that and I would get clean, um, except off of, you know, cigarettes and coffee. Um, but at one point when I, when I was mostly sober, I'm like, oh, look at all these people. They go to the bar and like they try to, you know, they're having fun, but they're spending money. And I had this like I was <laughs> I was caught up in something again. Right. To right. where I was it, it, where I was making these judgments and like demonizing people. And I was projecting my own things onto others. And then all of a sudden I'm realizing that I'm going to a coffee stand um, five days a week, every day that I work. And if I don't, I get anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, this sucks. I got to quit this. This is terrible. And I'm like getting like quad shots and like shaking. And, and then eventually if I don't have coffee, I'm like nodding off. I'm like, oh, I got a problem here. Wait, I'm just like all these people that I'm, you know what I mean? I'm pointing my finger at and maybe right. people right. who just use a substance. It's not the substance that causes them problems. So what? Someone goes and drinks. It's not the alcohol. It's not the user of the alcohol or the user mm -hmm. of the pot. Mm -hmm. It's the, the frequency or how they integrate it in their own life and like look at you mm -hmm. and then i so i deal with this coffee thing right and i have these like these these slow realizations but they didn't come all the way and like a year or two later i'm not i only drink coffee from home i try to um, have at least two days out of the week where i don't drink coffee mm -hmm. so i don't get habitualized to it but then i'm working mobile where i drive a van around and replace windshields and like i started to really like cashews <laughs> <laughs> and I'd buy a, the dreaded I'd buy, cashew addiction. Yes, the evil cashew addiction. I'd buy a <laughs> packet of cashews at the grocery or the gas station when I get uh, gas. Uh, and eventually, I'd only have to get gas every other day, but eventually, I would stop by the gas and just top off my gas tank to get cashews. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was spending, it was a, uh, $2 a day, five days a week. Uh, so 10 bucks a week. So 40 bucks a month on cashews. <laughs> and, and then I, my customer gave me the, I smell these, this like smoke, like hickory smoke smell as I go up to my, <laughs> my customer's house and he's smoking cashews right in front of me. <laughs> he's like, do you want some? I'm like, yeah, sure. He gives me two pounds of cashews. He's like, here, take some. You uh, can take them home and enjoy them. Those cashews didn't make it to my next customer's house. I was sick. <laughs> I was sick. And I'm like, you, you, no matter what, like, it's not the drugs. It's not the, the things. Right, right. It's, it's me. And I had to go on this long journey that I still go on because I catch myself, you know, here and there, like, oh mm -hmm. no, you're, you're being rel mm -hmm. overly reliant on this. It's like, it's my behavior and trying to unlock and figure out what what that tendency is inside of me mm -hmm. yeah wow. no that's exactly right that's exactly and, you know and and again in our society like coffee is totally you can have an addiction to coffee and that is just fine right oh yeah you can probably have an addiction to alcohol and it's not that big a deal right nah, no right? there's a difference between being a drunk and an alcoholic <laughs> right exactly you can have an addiction to netflix that's like very accepted <laughs> Um, but you can't have an addiction to X, Y, and Z, you know? So, yeah, you know, I think it's, um, you know, hopefully that, that conversation will shift to where people are kind of more aware of addiction as a pattern period, you know, the, the fun thing, which is completely anecdotal and irrelevant probably to most, but, um, is what was cool when I started getting into ultra running and then like rock climbing. And beyond that, when I started to like, 
I, I'm developed like, you know, that tribe that you talked about. Right. And I've been developing it and like abroad too, like not just like, Oh, I got a best friend. It's not that like, I have like these people that even if I've only met them once, like it's like, I've known them forever. And like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Having these like healthy relationships, healthy challenges. And as I have that, my tendency to abuse things just goes down. Like I, I'm, I, I use certain drugs recreationally now and it's like, I've, I don't have this abusive problem with them. And like, sometimes when I have a tendency for it, it's like when life's just completely chaotic and like mm-hmm. my, my mm-hmm. strategy and I don't have my strategies on hand. It's, it's right. interesting. Right. Yeah. It's the same. It's a compensatory thing, right? Like, right. If you, if you, if you have a strong base, then you're, you don't need that stuff nearly as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I, I, that's when, I, when I'm working with students who are in trouble with this stuff, I literally start with like, all right, let's start by like drinking water and getting some exercise and, you know, just do like very fundamental human being activities. Right, let's, let's go to the base of that and then we'll layer on these other strategies on top of that. Mm. And just to be respectful of your time in closing, um, how has Buddhism affected your perspective on all the things that you do and how has it affected your strategies for coping with things and also learning and growing? Yeah, no, it's been, um, it's, it's been a really sort of big part of my life. I mean, I would, I would call myself sort of at this point, sort of a Buddhist with a lowercase B. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, uh, I was always interested in Dharma and all, and all that stuff. And then in my, um, I guess in my like mid twenties got really serious about meditation. Um, and I did a number, there was a couple of years when I did a bunch of like silent 10 day retreats where I was just Ooh. basically meditating all day, you know, from like four in the morning till nine at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was amazing. It was really, really cool. And I think it was what I needed to do to like kind of step into adulthood and to kind of not that I was like super unhealthy, but you know, like sort of average early, late teen, early twenties, you know, life, I, it kind of let me detoxify, you know, Mm -hmm. that stuff. And, um, it was really, it was great. It was amazing. Um, and so I, and I still have a meditation practice. I still teach mindfulness. Um, I'm also very influenced, um, just by the whole wisdom tradition of, of the East, you know, um, I'm very influenced by a lot of the, the texts, you know, the ancient Buddhist texts, you know, they, there was a system called the Sanjo, which means the three systems, which is Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've studied kind of all of those pretty extensively. Um, and it's just given me like a framework of understanding the world. And, you know, like the end of the day, Buddhism is pretty much like a science, Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a science on how to deal with suffering, right? Mm. And, to be, and to be present with it, right? The Buddha was like, literally said, like, try these things and don't believe me, try them and see if they work for yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's been a really foundational thing for me to, you know, to be present, you know, like, you know, when I sit in the morning, you know, I finish my sit and I bow and, you know, I say sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Mm-hmm. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. Mm-hmm. The dharmas are boundless. I vow to master them. The Buddha way is unattainable. I vow to attain it. Right. And like attaining the unattainable, like 
that's kind of part of what life's about, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's certainly, um, been important to me and it's given me a, a set of tools and it's, um, and I found that it's really useful to be able to pass that on to others. And also just to be able to have a tool where, you know, I can, I can kind of, it allows me to kind of take charge of the rudder of my ship hmm. right? and not get drifted this way or that way. Right. If I can, if for a few minutes a day, I'm calm, I'm focused, I'm breathing, I'm present, then that really allows me to be more intentional about my life. Um, and now, you know, I'm starting, I've started in recent years to layer in sort of the integrate sort of the findings of science that we're kind of, that are kind of connecting with all of that as well. It's beautiful to be around in a time where like that's kind of getting bridged. Right. Exactly. Like, you know, we're finding out that the neurobiological signature of mysticism and of flow states and of high performance are identical. Mm-hmm. You know, so <laughs> how cool is that? Right. Like that is so cool. You can, you can experience these amazing states, have crazy adventures and get a lot of shit done. That's meaningful. Yeah. <laughs> and like for me like that's it's um it's been like the you put it a lot better though uh the but i'll generalize it as like the eastern philosophy Mm -hmm. um mixed with like stoicism like those things yeah are and ever since i was like ever since i overdosed when i was like 12 um Mm -hmm. have been the most fascinating thing in my like my life i've been obsessed with it and i Mm. I haven't done much reading though um other than like the Tao te ching but what would be your recommended reading on the topic for eastern spirituality oh um i'm trying to think so i mean so there's a um i'm trying to think there's a book called um the eight gates of zen um it's by a guy named john dido lori um who was a a zen teacher he passed away maybe i don't know eight ten years ago um um i really like that book a lot it's like a good sort of overall introduction to zen um and zen is i i really appreciate zen because um zen is all about like integrating your practice into your life Mm. You know, like, you know, they just say like, they have a saying like first enlightenment, no first dishes, then enlightenment, then more <laughs> dishes, <laughs> you, you, you know? Um, and, and I really appreciate that. Um, and then there's some other, you know, I also read a lot of like ancient, um, Chinese, uh, and Japanese, um, Buddhist poets. Um, uh, uh, and I find them to, you know, there was a guy named cold mountain, uh, mm-hmm. Anshan, who uh, was like this Buddhist mountain hermit uh, in the ninth century. Oh, cool. Um, and he lived in a cave. Um, and his writing is just really clear and thoughtful. Um, so, yeah, there's, um, but there's a, there's a number of, I mean, there's a lot of books these days. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I'd be happy to, I can send you a list. Uh, yeah. And I'll include uh, the list of those books too in the show notes. For yeah. Everyone, so. perfect. yeah. And uh, where could everyone find out more about you, Ian? Sure. Uh, so you can check me out. Uh, my website is ianramsey.net. Um, you can also, um, check me out. Uh, I direct the Kaufman program for environmental writing and wilderness exploration. Um, so if you can find the link to that 
Um, I, I do a lot of work with a territory run company. Um, so there's a number of essays and films and things I've been involved with on their website. Um, and then there's a nonprofit called Physiology First. So if you go to physiologyfirst.org, um, do a lot of really cool stuff with them where we're teaching breath work and kind of uh, various techniques to help teens manage stress and anxiety and to like up-level their performance. Um, so yeah, those are probably the, the big places to check, check me out. All right. Sweet. Thank you very much, Ian. I appreciate it, man. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. Woo! I love getting to talk to Ian. He has a very interesting outlook on life and his purpose or meaning or why he does the outdoor activities. Um, is, is very fascinating to me and I can and I can relate on to him on those points um, which is really cool because I think like when when people who who don't understand like you know sports or a given sport right on the outside would just see the surface ex- like one potential right which is like when I aspire to do this thing I'm going to try to 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 be as competitive as I can be I'm gonna place amongst all these you know people and that that's what the success looks like the only uh story of success right and as you get into it you realize that there's all of these different kinds of success within that story right Or, or there's all different kinds of success all different kinds of like narratives that are happening um in the archetype of the structure of whatever it is that you're pursuing right and that, like, the measure of success is a lot less fixed than than you you might assume. Anyways, if you want to learn more about Ian, you can head over to ianramsey.net or go to the links in the show notes at becominghumanpodcast.com or find us on Instagram at becominghumanpodcast. And if you like the show, please rate, review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you happen to listen to it. And... I'm going to play you out with a track by Christoph Crane, and that is called Always Be a Friend. Figures appropriate. songs and making friends and try my hardest to be the best person I possibly can. You show me how to look into myself and see the problem and reminding me no matter who you are that we've all got them. Now I think of you each time I stop to talk to someone I don't know. I can't get rid of you. I can't let go of something I can't hold. I miss having the option to call you when I'm feeling down. You always found a way to listen till you felt me through the phone. Now I walk around acting like I've learned to deal with it when I just want to sit with it so I can feel how real it is. I don't want to let you down. I hope I'm making you proud. You taught me how to be myself but right now I just don't know how Can't seem to figure out Exactly what I'm supposed to do Sometimes I cry until I can't Sometimes I laugh until I'm blue It's like you live So you learn what it feels like To be dead And then you die So you can finally feel alive again You will always be my friend Forever ever be my friend This is just a new beginning Time will see it's new again Till the end Till it ends You will always be my friend This is just a new beginning Time will see it's new again You will always be my friend Forever ever be my friend This is just a new beginning Time will see it's new again Till the end Till it ends You will always be my friend, this is just a new beginning, time will see us
my loss And feeling grateful for the privilege of knowing you for so long Kill the king, you told me I asked you what event You said it means to feel with all your heart and out of your head So now I try to have and figured out how to accept That I won't ever get to see you again until I'm dead Remember on the plane flying home from out west How we made a friendly bet of who could sell my CDs to our fans You loved that game, and so did I Even though I always knew that you would win every night without trying Now I'm faced with that meat I can't bite through I ask myself the question, I wonder what would Mike do But I know what you would do, you take your time and think it through And if it didn't come to you, you'd walk away and keep your cool And even though the memories are blowing in the wind Just know no matter what, you'll always have me as a friend You will always be my friend, forever, ever be my friend This is just a new beginning, time will see us do again Till the end, till it ends, you will always be my friend This is just a new beginning, time will see us do again Always be my friend, forever, ever be my friend. This is just a new beginning, time will see us through again. Till the end, till it ends, you will always be my friend. This is just a new beginning, time will see us through again. <laughs> 